0: Genesis 37 Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed, behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, On their way to carry it down to Egypt then Judah said to his brothers what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother our own flesh and his brothers listened to him then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver they took Joseph to Egypt When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him.
1: Like you had a day that left you with no hope? Have you ever felt like you had a day where you just wanted to give up? A day that you just felt extremely defeated? If you're looking for empathy, there may be a UT fan or two in here who might be able to sympathize with you. I'm not looking up. <laughs> Sorry. But really, there's so, there's so many people, there's so many people that live in this world, in this chaotic world, with no hope. So many people who, who live in this world, it seems like it's spiraling out of control. And it just feels like it can't keep up. And I think that leaves a lot of people wanting to then give up. And what I hope that we'll see this morning, and we'll see throughout the life of Joseph, really, is that there is hope found in knowing who's in control of the chaos. Who's in control of what appears to be chaos in our lives, and what might appear to be just everything spiraling out of control. There's hope that can be found in knowing who is in control. So I just want to run through Genesis 37 again real quick. um, Because I think it'll be helpful just to kind of run through and make sure that we're all on the same page with what happened here, how this played out in Genesis 37. And immediately we see the shift that I talked about last week, right? This shift a little bit away from Jacob, where the focus is not on Jacob, but is on Joseph. There in verse 2, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Like, right away, we see this shift happen in, in, in the text. And we're actually going to be following, really, Joseph's story for the remaining 14-ish chapters of Genesis. And just a reminder that Joseph is the son of, of Rachel, um, who we saw. She actually passed away in what we read last week. But Joseph and Benjamin were both born to Rachel, who was admittedly the favorite wife of Jacob, right? It was very very clear that Jacob loved her more than Leah. And I think we, we should not overlook that because this same favoritism that he showed towards Rachel seems to have now translated to his son Joseph. And it really begins to show in the verses 2 through 4. I'm just going to go ahead and read verses 2 through 4 again. It says These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This really sets the stage for the remainder of this chapter. How how the brothers see Joseph. They see the favoritism being shown towards him and that really impacts how they then view Joseph. And what we'll see is that the same hatred would then lead to what they would eventually act upon on the second half of the chapter. And Joseph it seems like he doesn't really help himself out a whole lot with telling this, these dreams to his brothers, to his father. Uh, it's basically the same two dreams, just said in two different ways. Um, that his brothers, that his mother, his father, he says, they're, they're bowing down to me. And it's hard to imagine why a father and why older brothers... Would not react the way they do, right? It's hard to imagine hearing that thing. Well, as your younger brother, I'm trying to think, 17-year-old. The closest relationship I have really with a 17 or 18-year-old boy is Tucker, and I just, I'm trying to picture Tucker going to older siblings, to a father, and saying, "You're all going to bow down to me one day." And just the the emotions that I can imagine coming out of a brother who's denying it in the moment, but um, he knows the truth. But the thing is, like, we see that the truth of his dreams, we, small spoiler, we see that his, the truth of his dreams, it's real, it's true. It's, it's exactly how it's going to play out. But here in Genesis 37, what we see is it just fuels the hatred within the brothers. The second half of verse 8 says that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, it, it just fuels their hatred, their, their jealousy towards Joseph. And it, seems, it shows that his brothers then went, went on to um, Shechem. And from what I read this week, Shechem was about 50 miles away from where they were living in Canaan. So this would have been a three, four, maybe five day journey for Joseph to go to them. But it says as soon as they see him coming, as soon as they see him coming, they're immediately plotting To kill him. And as I was preparing this week, at first, Reuben, I kept thinking this, that Reuben seems like a semi admirable character in the story, right? He's like, no, 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 don't kill him. It says that he actually was planning to go back and to rescue him later. I was like, that seems like a semi admirable thing, I mean, to go and and want to do that. But then I was like, if he really cared that much, if this was purely a selfless act of Reuben, Why did he not tell his father this at the end? Once they come back and say, your son is dead, he's been eaten by a wild beast, why did Reuben not say, he's actually going to Egypt? You would have thought that if he really cared that much, that he would have done this. We we see that that Joseph is then sold to, it says, a group of Ishmaelites that are um, going to Egypt. And then... They go back, the brothers go back to their father, and, and we see how that plays out as they, they, they lie to their father. They, they say that here's his coat that's been, that's been torn. Here he's been torn apart by a wild beast. But then the, the last verse, the last verse in chapter 37, is, is important because what it shows is that Jacob's, Joseph's story is not over. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt. In Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we know, and this is a, a spoiler that I'm okay with. Like we're not done with Joseph; like, his story is not ending here in chapter 37. And the last verse shows that there's there's more to come from him. He's been sold to the to Potiphar, this officer of Pharaoh. And as I was preparing this week, I kept thinking, there's been some very common themes all the way through Genesis that keep coming up. And Tanner and I talked about this briefly on Wednesday. But all through Genesis, we've seen that God continues to work through broken people. God continues to work through sinners in accomplishing his plan. He's working through sinners, not through perfect people in accomplishing what he is doing in the world. Adam and Eve, sinners. Noah, a drunkard. Abraham, a liar, deceiver. Isaac follows in the footsteps and lies and deceives. Jacob deceives, lies, tricks people. And now we see these these brothers of Joseph acting in much of the same way. And God continues to work through sinners. And what we see is that God can to work through sinners. We see also the impact of just generational sin that is marring, that is marking these families, these sins that are continuing down through generations. Because gener- generational sin, the, the long-lasting effects and consequences of sin, is very real. And we see this all over the Bible, and we see this all over the world. And we also see that this jealousy that Joseph's brothers are feeling towards him, this jealousy then fuels, this turns into hatred. This hatred then leads to violence and this desire to kill. But something also also that's been clear all through Genesis we've been talking, the more and more we see God continuing to work through this family that seems like a disaster. The more we've seen every story from Genesis one, like God's sovereignty, his control of the world continues to be so abundantly clear because no matter how much sin is present, no matter how wicked and sinful people are, God continues to carry out His plan. No matter how wicked people are, they do not ruin God's plan. He is the one in control. And that is in this text this morning. But just, just, just the generational sin that we've seen since, since Abraham. Like, just think of these things. We, talked, we touched on them some of the last couple months. Abraham. We saw the, the lying and deceit that was in him as he lied about his wife on multiple occasions being his sister. We've seen that then play out into Isaac's life. We've seen that play out into Jacob's life. And now this week we see that the brothers, the sons of Jacob, are then going to their father, lying and deceiving. We're seeing these things over and over again. We've also seen the favoritism of children over and over and over again. Abraham favoring Isaac over Ishmael, Isaac favoring Esau over Jacob. Now Jacob favoring Joseph over the brothers. The same trend is continuing. But also the this, this strife among siblings. The family's just not being able to get along. We see this over and over and over again. Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Joseph and his brothers. Over and over again. The same thing's happening. But it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. If you look at the, the interactions between siblings, you see, Ishmael was seen laughing at Isaac. There was some kind of tension there. But then, as we look go, now go into Jacob and Esau, there was this intense hatred, this desire to kill. And then, now this morning, we actually see action coming behind the hatred, coming behind the desire to harm. And as generations have gone by, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. There are many positive things that can be passed down in families, in generations, and we've talked about this. There's sometimes you have families that have generations of teachers, or generations of doctors, or generations of musicians, things like that that are passed down in families. I was thinking about this the other day because being a huge baseball fan, right now in the major in Major League Baseball, there's like, seven or eight different players whose fathers also played in Major League Baseball. And most of those, the fathers were people that I had watched when I was a lot younger, and now their 19, 20, 21-year-old sons are now in the Major Leagues. And, like, not only does this make me feel like I'm starting to age a little bit, but it's just another point that, like, there's positive things passed down in generations, too. The love for sports or... The, the desire, the, the love of teaching or an occupation, things like that. Maybe it's musical passion. And so it's not just negative things that are passed down in families. But what we've talked about on a, a couple different Sundays is that like just the sin of parents that then gets passed down, like, whether it's the sin itself, the consequences of sin, having to feel the weight of that sin, Generational sin that gets worse and worse and worse. On Friday night, we were um, reading to the kids um, from the little, like, sort of a Bible, the devotional we were reading, and it was going into um, the story of David and Bathsheba. And thankfully, it left out um, a lot of details, but it had a lot of the same, the same storylines of David and Bathsheba. And we read of, of Jacob's... Sorry, stuck on Jacob still. We read of David's just atrocious sin. The sin that he commits. We read about Nathan coming to David, calling him out, rebuking him for his sin. But then we read that God, what God said to him, that both he and his offspring were going to encounter suffering because of this sin. He said both David and his offspring were going to encounter suffering because of this sin. And the kids were saying, but that's not fair. Why should, Jacob's, why should David's children have to suffer because of David's sin? How is that fair? That's not fair. And it's, it's not. It's not fair. It's not fair that children have to bear the weight of their parents' sin, but it happens time and time again. Again. Sin has consequences that are generations long. When children grow up surrounded by sin, they feel the effects of it. And it's not fair. Again, thinking of the storyline of Joseph, of this family line, it's not fair that Ishmael was cast away because Sarah and Abraham made a bad choice. It wasn't fair that Jacob grew up feeling like he could never please his father. It wasn't fair that Joseph is now suffering because the rest of his brothers are jealous, lying, and deceiving. It's not fair. But this is the reality of sin. The consequences are long-lasting. We see this all over the Bible. We've seen this all over Genesis. If you travel out in these neighborhoods, you'll see it. If you travel across Johnson City, you'll see it. Many of you sitting here might be thinking, well, that has impacted me too. Because generational sin, the sins of our family, the sins of our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, don't have to define us. That does not have to be our identity. Like, through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, through salvation in Jesus, is the only thing that can break these chains. That can break these patterns. And God does this through His Son. You see, God changes Joseph's story. Although, what we read this week is like, wow, that looks really bad for Joseph. Like, Joseph got treated really unfairly, got thrown into this pit, then got sold as a slave. But in the midst of this, what we see is God rewriting Joseph's story. God sending him away to another place, away from that generational sin of his family, into a new place. God changes his story. And God still does this. God still does this. As I said a minute ago, Like the sins of our parents or grandparents or, or family in general does not have to define us. Jesus Christ can redefine us. Because as we are redefined by Jesus... Like, stories change. Generational sin can be put to death. Like, we have the opportunity to raise up a generation that is not impacted in this way. And I know not everyone is parents in here. But, like, within the church, raising up the next generation is really a team effort. I've, I've never believed this more than I have in the past couple months. But each one of us has a part to play, can, can play in raising up the next generation to not just be marked by sin, but to be shown who Jesus is. And that does not happen without trust being fully in Jesus. That Jesus alone can redefine us. That Jesus alone can give us a new identity. We we saw, the, we saw something else in over the last couple months about just the favoritism thing, and I, I touched on it a little bit earlier. But can we just say that the favoritism among children is wrong? Like you shouldn't have favorite children. As much as as often as I've heard Tanner claim to be the favorite child, I don't think it's true. But we've seen that the impact that the That this has had on this whole family. This whole family. As I talked about a minute ago, we've seen the the repercussions of that as it's gone down family lines. And we've seen what it's led to in Jacob's brothers, sorry, Joseph's brothers. We've seen what it's led to. It's led to jealousy. It's led to hatred. It's led to a desire to kill. And we can't think that verse 18, when it says they saw Joseph coming, like that did not just come out of nowhere. That wasn't just them deciding, oh, I think we hate him. Let's kill him. Because this is something that they had been feeling for a long time. We saw it all through this chapter. But these are feelings that have been stewing. They've been festering. This this jealousy towards their brother that came from their father's favoritism of him. We saw this jealousy. We saw the hatred. And now we see the, their desire to act upon this, to kill their brother. I, I, I kept thinking just how important like, it is to address sin as soon as it is present. Because well, remember how, how it grew in them. It wasn't They didn't try to kill him the first time. It says they hated him. They were jealous of him. It, it, that grew and now they're wanting to kill him. And I kept thinking of Matthew 5, where Jesus, on more than one occasion, says, like, what we feel in our heart, the desires of our heart, are just as important as the way we act. That that, that hatred towards someone is just the same as murder. That lust in our heart is the same as adultery. That just because we don't act on them, just because we don't act on feelings, just because we don't act on desires, does not mean they're not sin. James 1, 14-15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Are there things in your life that you've been justifying because you haven't acted upon them? Are there things in your life... So we see how this progressed in the life of Joseph's brothers. This jealousy that turned to hatred, that then turned to... that would have been murder if, if things hadn't changed. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it is anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's hatred. But we shouldn't be so foolish to think that these same things don't fester in us. These same things don't just build up in us. And the longer that we ignore them, the longer that we try to say, oh, it's not that bad because I'm not acting on it. I'm just thinking it. We're foolish if we think that will not eventually lead to death. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We must repent of these sins. Put sin to death. Because if we don't put sin to death, it grows, it festers, it will come out. And it will kill us. Sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. So what is God doing here? What is God doing in this text? I don't know if you noticed or not, but God's not mentioned anywhere in Genesis 37. God's not mentioned anywhere in Genesis 38, which we'll get into next week. What is God doing? What is God doing as Joseph's brothers seek to kill him? What is God doing when he's sold into Egypt. What is God doing? As His chosen family, this chosen people seem to once again be deteriorated, deteriorating. What is God doing? I struggled in thinking how to talk about this because without spoiling the entire storyline of Joseph. But everything that we see all of Genesis 37, all of Genesis completely up to this point. God's fingerprints, God's actions, His plan, Joseph's story. God is behind all of this. God is bringing all of this exactly to where He wants it, when He wants it, how He wants it. But think, maybe you're not familiar with this story. And if you are, pretend like you aren't for a minute. Like, if I told you, just imagine me telling you now, based on what we read this morning, that God's plan for Joseph was to to then prosper him in Egypt. That he was going to put him in a place of prominence, that people would come and bow down to him. Based on what we read this morning, if you didn't know the end of the story, I feel like that'd be really, really hard to believe. Because isn't that kind of the opposite of what's been happening? There's no one bowing down to Joseph. He's been thrown into a pit, he's been sold as a slave. Isn't Joseph just the victim of evil desires, of evil action? How in the world is Joseph at the center of God's plan here? And so through all of this, through every ounce of this, God's sovereignty is abundantly clear. What do I mean by sovereignty? That God is in full control of every ounce of this, every moment of this. That all of this is building towards his perfect plan his plans for Joseph, his plans for his people Israel, his plans to send them to Egypt. God is working all of this together with everything else that he's doing. Is Jacob suffering at the hands of his brothers? Yes. Is Joseph suffering because of evil? Yes. Is God in control of Joseph's life? Yes. God is doing all of this, bringing all of this exactly where he wants it to be. Look at Genesis 37:14 through 17. This is a really small part of this chapter and probably one you didn't think much of and I didn't in the first probably five or six times I read it this week. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. So, so Joseph goes to find his brothers. In verse 14 it says, So he said to them, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? He said, I am seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Remember, Joseph has traveled over 50 miles looking for his brothers. Dothan from what I read this week, was another 15 miles further. Multiple days worth of travel to go to this place. And he just so happens to run into this guy. Actually, it says that guy just so happened to find him. That same guy was the one who just so happened to hear his brother say, oh, let's go to Dothan. Let's go pasture the flock there. I can't help but think... Like If Joseph doesn't talk to that one guy who happened to hear his brothers saying of what they were going to do, how is Joseph ever going to find his brothers? You see, God is writing the story. God is the one saying, no, you're going to go to your brothers. In spite of what they're going to do to you, God knows exactly what's going to happen. Yet God ensures That this interaction happens. God leads Joseph, not just to Shechem, but then to Dothan, and then would lead him to Egypt. This was God's doing. God was doing this whole thing, God was writing this story. But why? Why? What is God doing here in Genesis 37? Why does Joseph experience such evil? comes back to that, the problem of evil. Why does a good God, if He is sovereign, why is there so much evil in the world? Do I fully understand the answer to this question? <coughs> no. But what I kept coming back to this week, and it's not necessarily something that all through seminary, various classes, that got into the problem of evil. We talked about that in multiple different classes. But this, this week, as I was thinking about this, thinking about the evil that Joseph is experiencing, man, let me just ask a question. With the absence of evil, with the absence of evil in the world, would we fully, truly understand how wonderful and beautiful Jesus Christ is. Think, about it, Jesus stands in stark contrast to everything else that we experience in this world. A world full of sin, a world full of hatred, crime, jealousy, murder, a world full of abuse, addiction, division, shame, lust, In a world where all of this is reality, the person and the work of Jesus Christ stands in direct opposition to all of this. Jesus lived a perfect life. Perfect obedience to His Father. Perfect submission to His will. Perfect life of abstaining from sin. Perfect compassion for those around Him. Perfect empathy for sinners. Perfectly went to these sinners, dining with them, walking with them, touching them, healing them. Over and over again, Jesus stepped towards sinners, towards sinners, and called them to something so much greater, something so much more perfect, so much more wonderful, so much more satisfying. Because as I look at the evil in this world, as I see the evil in this world, I can't help but be drawn to Jesus all the more. A perfect Savior in whom there's no fault, no imperfection, no evil. A Savior who will never let me go. An immovable rock. A firm foundation when everything else seems like chaos. Again, I don't fully understand the problem of evil. Why there's so much evil in the world. I don't understand it but something I've learned to realize, I've learned to see, is that when we experience evil, when we see it in the world, Jesus becomes so much more beautiful, so much more wonderful, so much more perfect, so much more desirable, so much more satisfying, because everything else fails in comparison. Everything else. What this means is that when we sin, when we sin, when that sin comes from us, we can look to Jesus where full redemption, where full forgiveness is found. Ephesians 1.7 says that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Because in Jesus and only in Jesus can full forgiveness from our sin, from our trespasses, only in Jesus can this be found. But also, as I look at this, when we are sinned against, when the sins of others impact us, when we feel those consequences too, we can too look at Jesus, who with full empathy, perfect empathy, because Jesus was sinned against He was slandered. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was murdered. All sin that was committed against him. So we've had nowhere else to look. When we experience sin, whether it's our sin or the sins of others, we can look to Jesus because he alone understands. He alone can save. He alone forgives As I've been looking at this, seeing, like we see the sovereignty of God. God being in control here in Genesis 37. I think it's one thing to understand that, man, we see this. We know how this story plays out. We see, yes, God was in control. God was leading Joseph to Egypt. God was doing all this. We see his plan playing out. But it's a different thing to realize that that same God, who was in control of Joseph's life, the same God that led him to Egypt that we read about here, the same God who is sovereign in that moment is sovereign over you today. That same God who was with Joseph, even leading him through some really dark times, that same God who is faithful to Joseph every step of the way, working all things according to this perfect plan, God meaning all of this for good, this same God, is sovereign today. No matter how you might feel the consequences of sin, your sin, the sins of others, no matter the reality of generational sin in your life, God is sovereign. No matter how hard things might be, no matter how much evil you might see around you, there is hope. Because a good God, a gracious God, a sovereign God is working all things together for good. I'll be honest. I have not believed this the last month or so. I've said it a lot with my words, but I don't think I've really believed it with my heart. Said it a lot with my words, but I don't know that I believed it in my heart. Because there's been a lot of hard days, there's been a lot of difficult days, there's been lots of tears, there's been lots of frustrations, and there's been a whole lot of times that I was acting as if evil had won. That I've been acting as if things were beyond repair, that there was no hope because of the evil that I saw. And I spent the last week preparing this sermon, still not believing it, but, but preparing this. And earlier this weekend, earlier this weekend, after being very discouraged again, feeling like there was no hope, my beautiful, wonderful wife said something along these lines She said, I need you to start acting like there is hope and that you have faith in that hope. I was preparing to preach the sermon, and I didn't believe it. But guys, if God is sovereign, if God is in control, and He is, then we have every reason to hope because the God who created us, the God who is sovereign, is in control. When times are good, when times are bad, no matter what, God is in control, and there is no better place to be. We have hope because God is on His throne. God, the God of the universe is on His throne. He's the one in control. I couldn't help but think, as Tanner was singing this morning, I went back and copied some of the lyrics because it's so perfect. So perfect. People, somebody asked last week, do we plan this out? Do we plan the songs around the sermon? We don't. But God, it's amazing how well these pair together. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know that He holds the future. He holds the future. And life is worth the living. Because He lives because he lives when we look back on our lives when we see the sin that is in our past as we see the way that we felt the consequences of our sin life is worth the living because jesus lives because he overcame like it doesn't matter it's not us there's only one who overcame It wasn't me. It wasn't you. It was no political leader. It was no religious leader. It was no pastor. It was no doctor. Jesus and Jesus alone overcame this and Jesus lives. He lives. Every giant will fall. The mountains will move. Every chain of the past you've broken in two. Over fear, over lies, we are singing the truth that nothing is impossible with you the compassionate savior the perfect jesus died he rose again and he lives he died so that we might be a part of the family of god he died To transfer us into God's kingdom. There is no greater hope. There's no greater hope. God is sovereign, God is on his throne. Jesus allows us to be a part of the family. God sent his son to die for us so that we might be a part of that family. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's in control? Do you? Do you believe this? I'm going to pray right now. And I pray that we would all believe this or believe this on a whole new level. That God is sovereign. That God is in control. That there is nothing in this world that He has not already overcome. That He's not better than. That He's not more perfect than. And I pray that we would all see this and believe it.